Welcome to Three Strands Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon you're about to hear. At Three Strands, our mission is to create a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. In November of 2006, the Wii was launched, and it seemed to um, be this godsend for parents who you know, were confused and didn't know exactly what to do with their kids who seemed to be playing video games all day long and never going outside and playing and, and, and afraid they were going to like burn their retinas out just staring at the TV screen all day, right? And so the Wii came out and it was supposed to be like a video game you could play while you exercise. And it was going to like um, change the whole dynamic of childhood obesity and all this stuff. Like, so kids were going to like be playing video games all day but really working out as they go and uh, anybody that like lived at that time, you know that it only took you like one or two days of owning a Wii before you realized the real challenge of the Wii became to see how little movement you could actually do and still do what they were trying to tell you to do. And so you'd roll in on some kid playing on his Wii, you know, the, um, laying on the couch. And he'd just be laying there and he'd just be like kind of flicking his hand. And you'd ask him what he was doing. He'd be like downhill skiing or playing golf, and you're like, all you're doing is that, you know? And so, like, that's really, so it didn't really solve the problem, but the Christian life in church has kind of become like the we. It's almost become like this race to the bottom of how little work and motion can I do and still be a Christian? How little exercise of my faith can I perform? How, how little do I have to work out and still be considered one of Jesus's. And that's really the opposite of the approach we should have. And that's what James is writing about. That our faith is supposed to be something that we exercise, that we work out, that we grow in, that we get stronger in. The goal shouldn't be like, hey, I've been a Christian for a while now. How much less can I do now? It should be the opposite. We should be advancing, growing, maturing in our faith, getting a little stronger, a little bit more resistant, you know, a little bit more resistance in our walk with the Lord, the, the things that crushed our spirits when we first became a Christian, we should be able now to take them to the Lord and be like, God, help me to have some thicker skin because I'm in this for you. I'm not worried about what people think of me. Or, or like the serving roles that we took on on day one of our Christian faith should be kind of like, man, I could take on more for you now, Lord. Give me greater responsibility. And yet it's so often the opposite. Where it's like we regress and we become a Christian and we declare our faith in Jesus and we ask him to save us and we're fired up and passionate for the Lord. And then within a couple years, we kind of like step back and we're just laying on the couch kind of flicking our wrist. Thinking we're doing the right thing. And James is writing this letter to say like, no, it's not supposed to be like that. You're supposed to have a faith that works. You're supposed to have a faith that, that stretches itself and grows and does the hard work of growing up. And so that's what he's talking about in this series. So we're kind of in the middle of it today. And, and if you were here back on week one, we kind of looked at the beginning of chapter one and asked and answered this question. Oh, what do you do when something feels so difficult you don't know if you can get through it? How do you get through what feels ungetthroughable? And James gave us the answer. And his answer was that you give obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. Obedience to the lordship of Jesus, no matter how difficult the trouble is, no matter how difficult the trial is, or no matter how intense the temptation is, you just double down and press into the Jesus way and obey. 
Whether you can see the end game or not, whether you can see the answers or not, you just follow. And then if you were here in week two, James kind of got into this discussion about like, you know, how can you say you have faith but you don't ever do anything with it? Your, your faith ought to drive you to some action. In fact, your faith ought to drive you to act like Jesus acted. And if it doesn't, he says, then it's fake. It's not faith. And then last week, he, I said we were going to kind of piggyback off that same idea. He doubles down on that same idea. And he kind of says, like, you say you have faith, but you have to show you have faith. It isn't enough just to talk the game. You can't just talk the talk. You have to walk the walk. If you don't walk the walk, it kind of reveals that Maybe you aren't as transformed as you think you are. Maybe you aren't as surrendered to Jesus as you act like you are. Maybe you're not quite the Christian you say you are. There's a faith that works and a faith that's worthless, he says. And uh, he kind of does this where he puts these two extremes together and he says, like, they can't both be true. You, You can't say you love God and then live like the world. You can't say that um, you're filled with compassion like Jesus, but you never serve people who can't repay you. These things don't go together. You can't say you have faith, but you have no works. They don't coexist like that. You have to have both. Not just the words, but the actions that kind of back it up. And uh, so then he gets to chapter 3, kind of in the middle of the book. And this is what he says in chapter 3, verse 1, and it sounds like, He's just talking to me or, or, or kind of the select few that get to teach in our church. And here's what he says in verse one. Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now it sounds like I said, it sounds like he's talking about us like me, right? Maybe Cade, who's teaching the kids' class today, or Kenny, who's up here preaching sometimes. But I want you to know up front, what James is going to do in chapter 3 is not spew out a bunch of information for the pastors. It's not what he's doing. I'm going to show you in a second, okay? But he starts off, and this is an important teaching. It's true that that we should kind of limit those who teach in the church. Now, he's going to show us who we limit it to. And what he's not saying here is that we should limit it to a few elites who are perfect. It's not what he's saying, although that's what most people think in their church. They look at their pastor, I mean, not really in our church, but in a lot of churches, they look at their pastor and think, like, that guy's perfect. If I could just be like that guy, I'd have it all figured out. And that's not true, and that's not what James is teaching us here. I can prove it with the very next line that starts verse 2. Here's what he says. He starts off the very next line by saying, Indeed, we all make many mistakes. Okay? So it sounds like he's talking to preachers or teachers in the church, and he says, not many of us should become teachers or preachers in the church. And you would think that the reason for that would be because not many of us are good enough. But that's not what he's saying. And I know that because the very next line says, we all make many mistakes. The preachers and the teachers in our church, they don't make less mistakes than you. We, we might make more mistakes than you. I don't know. I, I make a lot of mistakes, you know. And so that isn't what James is trying to teach us here. I'm going to show you what he's trying to teach because the rest of the chapter, basically, he spends talking about one thing. Now, here's what it is. It seems like, based on how he starts it off, it ought to be like leadership qualifications, you know, teaching skills, what makes you qualified to be a good preacher, 
stuff like that. He doesn't say anything about that the rest of the chapter. In fact, he doesn't even mention teachers or preachers again the rest of the chapter. Instead, he spends virtually the rest of the chapter talking about controlling your tongue. Having control over what you say and don't say. And that becomes the framework for how you should decide if you should be a teacher in the church. That's a hard one. I want to ask you this question to kind of get us kicked off today. And I'll give you the answer. It's kind of rhetorical, but I'll give you the answer too, you know. So what sin are you most likely to commit today? Now just sink in your head. Like which sin would you be most likely to commit today? Now if you thought about that, you'd probably get a lot of different answers in the room if I went around and interviewed everybody. But most likely what you would pick would be the sin that causes you to feel the most shame. You probably name that thing that you're most embarrassed about that you do or you think or you say. You probably name that thing that if we put it on the screen and everybody saw that this is what you were like, you'd be absolutely head down, hung low, walking out of the room, not wanting to be seen again, hiding at your house. But that isn't the truth. The truth is that this is the sin, the one James talking about today. The sin of not controlling my tongue. Not controlling what I say. And why I know that is because we all struggle with it. It's, it's one of those sins like you don't need anybody else to help you with it, to do it, right? You can do it whether you're by yourself or with a group of people. You don't need to go do any. You can be right where you are. You carry this sin around with you everywhere. And it can be unleashed in a second. And if you were being honest... You'd have to admit that every single one of us breaks this sin all the time. That we say things that God wouldn't say if he were us. That we say things that crush other people's spirits. That we say things that aren't productive for the kingdom of heaven. That we say all kinds of things that God would not be wanting us to say. Whether we're alone or with people. And James is going to address this for a large chunk of this five chapter book. In fact, he already addressed it just a little bit. If you can remember back to week one in chapter one, he touched on this, right? In chapter one, verse 19, he said this. I think I got that out of order, if that's okay, Addison. You got that? Oh, my dear brothers and sisters, you must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. AKA, you got to control what you say. A little later on that same chapter, in verse 26, he said, if you claim you're religious, but you don't control your tongue, control your tongue just means control what you say, then your religion is worthless. Here's this idea again. Where he puts these two things beside each other, and he says, it can't, they can't both be right. You can't say you're religious, but yet not control your tongue. It doesn't matter what you claim to be. Or it doesn't matter what some church declares you to be. If you don't control your tongue, maybe you're not quite as religious as you think you are. And, and, and let me read you the rest. Go back to chapter 3 now. Let me read you the rest of verse 2 where he kind of unveils this is going to be his topic. Remember he just got done saying not many of us should be teachers in the church. Indeed, we all make many mistakes. And here's how he finishes verse 2. If you can go back to that now. He says, for if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and can also control ourselves in every 
other way. That doesn't even make sense. It, like, it's like it doesn't even go with verse 1. Just stay with me for a second, okay? I thought we were talking about teachers and leaders and preachers. Okay, I get it. We all make mistakes. But who should be a preacher and a teacher and a leader? And he just seems to ignore it and move on. Just says, for if we could control our tongues, we could control every other part of our life. Now, here's what's interesting. The word there for perfect, a lot of times in the New Testament, the word perfect you'll see or mature, it's like that word of kind of like being complete, being grown up, right? But not here. Here, the word for perfect is literally like flawless. It's almost like James is saying, none of us can control our tongue. We all make many mistakes. But if you could control your tongue perfectly, you'd be perfect. Like you'd be able to be perfect in every area if you could control that one area. That's how powerful your tongue is over you. As if if this tiny little piece of us can, can control all of us. And it kind of does. You ever been in a situation where like your tongue gets you into trouble? Your mouth? How many kids get into trouble because of their mouth? How many of us at work get into trouble because we can't, we can't hold back what we're thinking? How many of us get in trouble on social media because we just have to get our opinion out there? And James is saying like, if you could control your tongue and what you say and don't say, you'd be able to be perfect in like every area of life. That's fascinating to me. It's just this little tiny part of us. You can't even hardly see it most of the time in most people. And James is saying, yet it has the power to control your whole life. He's gonna go on to give us three examples of that. Let me show them to you. Verse three, he gives us the first one. And he says, We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. You get it? The small thing controls the large thing. Verse 4, he gives us the second example. He says, A small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. A small rudder controls the whole boat. Second example. Verse 5, he gives us a third example. Here he goes again, kind of, over-exampling us. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. A spark is just little, but it can set ablaze the entire forest. This is his example, after one after another. Just like that, your tongue is just this little thing, but can control the whole. Control your body, control your life, control every piece of you. If you could just master this one area. You'd master every area. It's fascinating. It wouldn't be the sin that any of us would say. If somebody was like, what's the sin you struggle with the most? Almost nobody would say this. If you were most likely to commit a sin today, what would it be? Almost nobody would give this. And yet James seems to single this out. It's supremely important to our character, our development, our growth, our maturity as a follower of Jesus. Maturity, that's really what he's talking about. And he kind of presents it as if there's this link between controlling your tongue and becoming mature. And when it comes to who should teach and preach in a church, that's really what he's talking about. We shouldn't just have anybody teaching and preaching in a church. Only those who are mature enough to control what they say. 
You're like, I don't even know if that's you, David. Like, I don't know if that's me either, to be honest. I, I feel like I got to like, talk to God about that all the time. And I just go back to the chapter two or chapter three, verse two, where he says, like, we all make many mistakes. And I'm like, somehow there's some grace involved in that lack of control over our tongues. And yet somehow there's this expectation that we would grow up and be mature with them at the same time. And so he gives us these examples. And then in case you couldn't see where he was going with this, he's going to go on in the next chunk, the next paragraph, and he's going to describe just how wicked, just how um, destructive, just how dangerous a tongue can be, just how dangerous our words are. Listen to it, starting in verse 6. He says, and among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness, corrupting your entire body. There's that idea again. This tiny little thing impacts all of us, all that we are. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. And I wonder how many of us, if we were being honest, would hear those words and think, that's me. I am so often full of deadly poison. I am so often like an out-of-control, raging forest fire, full of evil in what I say. I come to church on Sunday, and I want to say the right things, but I go out, and from Monday to Saturday, I seem to say all the evil, wicked, destructive things. This is who James is talking about. Not the atheist. Not the God-hater. Not the person out there. He's talking to the church. He's talking to Christians, and he's saying, man, we got to get control of our tongues because they're destructive and deadly. It's the difference between living faith and dead faith. The difference between a faith that works and a faith that's worthless person that can control their tongue and the person that can't. Now he goes on and shows us how you can know if this is you. How you can know if your tongue's out of control because it's hard to figure out. There might not be anybody in the room that would fess up and admit that like this is really a problem for them. We'd all like to think we're saying all the right things. So he's going to show us how to spot this in our own life. How do we become the type of person that can control what I say? How do I become mature instead of immature? How do I grow up and gain control over every aspect of my life? Let me read it to you, and then we'll look at it together. He starts in the next verse, in verse 13. No, no, no. I missed a couple, right? He examples these, too. Let me show them to you. Verse 11. Here's where he shows you that comparison. He says, does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Of course not, right? Of course not. Verse 12, does a fig tree produce olives? Of course not. Or a grapevine produce figs? Of course not. No, you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. You get what he's saying? You can't be a teacher in the church. You can't be religious. You can't have a faith that's mature. You can't be a Christian and just say whatever you want. It doesn't work like that. You have to control your tongue. All right, so now let me read you what he says how you can spot this, how you can identify it, how you can control what you say, starting in verse 13. He says, if you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it 
man, underline that. It's really what we've been talking about for four weeks now. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it. You say you have faith. Show me you have faith. Prove it, right? Prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility. Just circle that word if you're a note taker. With the humility that comes from wisdom. Doesn't sound like you're talking about what we say here, James. What do you Stay with me, okay? But if you are bitterly jealous, you can circle that if you want to, bitterly jealous, and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying, for jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Goodness. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, willing to yield to others, and is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. Man, look at that verse. Is that the you that walks out of here on Sundays? Pure, peace-loving, gentle at all times, willing to yield to others, full of mercy, full of good deeds, doesn't show favoritism, always sincere. This is what James describes as wise, God's wisdom. It's that wisdom plus humility that it takes to kind of get to this mature state where you're controlling your tongue. Now listen, there was a lot in that paragraph. We're not going to hit all of it today. There was a lot in there. But I can sum it all up for you in two words. You ready? Humility, pride. Humility and pride. That's what James is describing. You want to be mature? You want to control your tongue? You want to have a say-so over what you say and what you don't say? You want to grow up in your faith? You got to be humble. It's going to take some humility. If you're proud, you're never going to get there. And then he describes both those things. Which one characterizes you, I wonder? If you asked all the people in your life, hey, would you classify them as humble or proud? And some people would be like, is that my only two choices? Yeah, that's your only two choices. Would they characterize you as humble or proud? Because that humility is what it takes to live wisely. And living wisely is what it's going to take to control your tongue. And controlling your tongue is what it's going to take to have real faith that works. Grown-up, mature faith. The humble person, James says, seeks to do good works, but they do it with pure motives. They seek to make peace around them, not chaos. They are gentle. They yield to others' opinions instead of seeking credit or recognition for all their own opinions. They're filled with mercy for the shortcomings of other people. The only reward they're hunting after is the reward that comes from Jesus. Jesus himself said, like, do your good deeds so nobody else can see you doing them. If you're doing your good deeds to be seen by others, then that's all the reward you're ever going to get for him. But don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Be humble. Take the low road. For the humble, those are the ones that will inherit the kingdom of God. 
And so you might be this person that's like loaded down with serving roles and you do all these good things for others, but James is like, but the humble person, the wise person, the mature person, the person that can control their tongue, you got to trickle that down and be like, not only am I doing the right things, but do I have pure motives? Or do I want people to give me a praise for doing that? Do I want people to smack me on the back and say, great job setting up all that food today? Thank you. I'm so thankful that you worship and lead us in singing. I'm so thankful that you teach us every Sunday morning. See, there's lots of people that want to preach and teach in a church. But James is saying you got to be mature if you're going to do that. Mature enough to not be in it for your own credit. And I want you to know that, like, I say a lot of messed up things because we all make many mistakes. Man, but if you really knew me, you would know, like, I don't want any credit. Like, I really don't. I just want Jesus to get credit. And the thing that like, I don't know, Andy Cooper, a la Andy Cooper here, like the thing that kind of grinds my gears is when it's obvious that somebody is hunting for credit. I can't stand that. I can't stand that like, uh, that like humble brag. You know what I'm talking about? Where they just can't, they just insist on letting you know like how great they are in a way that like they're trying not to let you know how great they are. Like, man, I can read right through that. Like, stop acting like you're all that. I don't care. Let's just give Jesus all the credit, you know? And James is saying like, you'll never be able to control your tongue as long as the pride inside of you is driving you to lie, cover up who you really are, boast about stuff so you sound better than you are, hunt for credit and attention, be filled with selfish ambition and bitter, bitter jealousy. Why do they get to do that? They're no better than me. That's the spirit of pride that keeps you immature and gives you no control over your tongue. He goes to the other side. He says the proud person, they're consumed with jealousy and ambition. They too might do good works, but they want the recognition for it. They brag about their qualifications and get bitter if anyone suggests they might be less qualified than someone else or less qualified than they need to be to do that role. They get upset if anybody in leadership at our church challenges them to grow in that role before they get into it. And almost every single time I've ever confronted somebody on this, almost every single time, and I have done that several times, just like, hey, man, I'm not trying to call you out and make you feel bad, but it just seems like you kind of want this for you. Every time I've ever done that, the other person has been like, it's really not true. They deny it. And maybe it's not true. I don't, I don't know their heart. But it's like, I'm just saying that so you know, like, it's super hard to see in ourselves. It's hard to see. It's hard to see that I'm in it for the feel-good tingle on my spine of somebody telling me I preached good today. I think I've said this to our church before, but like, I'd almost prefer you not tell me I do a good job if I ever do. You know what I mean? I, like, I'd almost prefer you not tell me. I can't remember who said that. Lee, I think, before church came up to me and said, somebody that was here last week doesn't go to our church. Somebody was here last week, saw him during the week, and was like going on and on about me. And I was like, ah, just like, like I don't even want to know because I'm so tempted because the sin I'm most likely to commit is the one where I let my pride elevate itself to where like, yeah, I was good. You heard what I said, right? Like my opinions, I floored them. I kind of crushed that one for Jesus, didn't I? Probably get an extra crown in heaven for that sermon. And James is like, that's immaturity. 
That's arrogance and pride. That brings chaos and disorder and disunity. This person won't admit their struggles. No way. Instead, James describes them as the person that covers up the truth and does it with boasting, bragging, and lying to make themselves look better than they are. Because if anybody ever knew what they were really like on the inside, they might ask them not to be in that role that gets them all kinds of credit and attention. And that's what they desperately want more than anything. Disevil and disunity are constantly in their wake. Look around at your life. Is it marked by calm, peaceful encounters with people? Or is it marked by disunity and chaos? Evil feeds off of this approach to the Christian experience, James says. He calls it earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now look back with me at verse 13 just for a second. I want you to see this verse again. Here's what he says. If you are wise and understand God's ways. In chapter 1, he said, if you claim to be religious. In chapter 2, he said, if you say you have faith. Now in chapter 3, he's saying, if you are wise and understand God's ways. These are all the same thing. You get it, right? Prove it. Show it. Work it out. Over and over, the same idea. If you're wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life. That's doing good works, showing it by your actions, right? But then he goes on and he says, do good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. He's adding to the puzzle. You can't just say all the right things. And you can't just do all the right things. You also have to have all the right motives. And there's no better example, there's no better revelation of what's going on on the inside than what comes out of your mouth to the outside. Jesus said, it's not what you take into your body that defiles you, it's what you spew out that corrupts you. For out of the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, man speaks. And so we're shown to be righteous with God by our faith, absolutely. But James has been teaching us that it's verified by our actions. And now he's saying, but beyond that, it's got to be even validated further with my motives. And my words will reveal my motives. They'll reveal if I'm humble or arrogant. They'll reveal if I'm in it for me or in it for God. They'll reveal if I'm looking for credit and glory or if I'm just humbly serving Jesus every day of my life. Because if I don't serve him when nobody can see, it says something about me. If I'm cussing people out under my breath when nobody else can hear it, it says something about me. If I say all the right things when I meet somebody at the door on Sunday morning, but I say all the wrong, wrong things about somebody with some ghost account I got on social media, it says something about my heart. It says something about my faith. This is what James is trying to point out to us. This is how I live. And he's saying you can choose it. Prove it, he says. If you're this person, do it. Live this way. You have control over it. If you say you're with Jesus, then prove it. Live the Jesus way with humility. You can choose to take the low position, to take the back seat, to honor others over yourself. You can choose it. Listen, we can't go through the entire Bible today and teach everything the Bible says about the words God wants, us, God wants us to use and the words God doesn't want us to use. But I just sat the other day and I just tried to think up like, uh, based on like what I know of the Bible, what are the most common kinds of words that God doesn't want me to use 
and what are the most common kinds of words God does want, want me to use. Now you just take a look at these lists and you tell me which one sounds like you. So I called this first list the, the words of death. Okay, the words of death. And, and here's what they are. Here's what I could think of off the top of my head. Like I said, we don't have time to look at everything the Bible has to say about all these. But the Bible would tell us not to use these kind of words. Now tell me how many of these words are in your day. You ready? Words of complaining. Yeah, like some people are like, I'm out already, you know. Like I'm already out. Words of complaining. Words of unthankfulness. The Bible would tell us not to be unthankful. Words of gossip. And gossip isn't just lying. I had that discussion with somebody in my life group a couple weeks ago. But gossip isn't just lying. You can be gossiping saying the truth about somebody. Here's a good rule of thumb to keep you from gossiping. You ready? If they're not there, stop talking about them. That's a good rule of thumb. Get other people's names like out of your mouth. Just talk about you. That's a good rule if you want to stop gossiping, right? But it can be true, you know. If, if I'm talking about somebody behind their back and it would hurt their feelings, whether it's true or not, it's gossip. I, I can't remember. I think it was Noah. Noah and I might have been talking about that. I can't remember. I was like, listen, man, if you meet somebody and they're like 480 pounds and then they're not around and you like call them fat, that's still gossip. They might be obese. I don't know. Who knows? It's still gossip. It, whether it's true or not doesn't matter. Just stop talking about people when they're not around. But how often is that what marks my day? How about harshness, words of harshness? Because everybody else around us is stupid. Man, it's hard for me. Like, I say stuff like that all the time. If they cut me off in traffic, they're an idiot. You know what I mean? If they give me the wrong change at the checkout line, like, I don't even want to go back to that store. They're dead to me. It's like I'm so quick to be harsh on people. It's like just a mistake, but it's like in my mind, they're like mentally defective, you know? Harshness. Words of unkindness. Words that is going to drive that person further away. How about words of dishonesty or words of slander? Those are the ones I could think of off the top of my head that I know for sure the Bible preaches against harshly for us. Tells us not to do these things. And I look at that list and I wonder like how much of my conversation from day to day is made up of a lot of those things. Complaining about what my boss did. Being completely unthankful for all the things I've got. Talking about people behind their back. Calling other people imbeciles and they're dead to me. And just being harsh. Speaking words that are just jokes and sarcasm and not ever kind. Lying to make myself look better. Fudging the truth. Shading the gray areas a little bit darker. So nobody knows the real me. Just bashing other people. How much of my conversation is those things? And then on the other side, I sat and I thought, what are the words that the Bible would tell us to speak? And I called those words of life. And I can think of passages all throughout the Bible that, that tell us to speak these kind of words. And here's what I came up with just off the top of my head. Words of hope. You're actually like putting hope into other people. How many people walk away from conversations with you more energized and more hopeful about the future? And how many of them are like, they're right, our country's probably going to hell in a handbasket. They just told me all that. You know, everything we tell them is about like how the communists are taking over and the Muslims are going to get us. And, and they walk away from a conversation with us afraid to even talk to their neighbor because they think they're going to get bombed. We're not putting hope into people. How about words of gratitude? It's not just something for Thanksgiving Day where mom makes you say one thing you're thankful for before you get to eat. 
It's actually supposed to be the way we talk all the time. How about words of peace? Are there more fights or less fights because you're around? Does the group get more unified or more divided when you're at it? How about words of gentleness? Words of kindness? Words of truth? And words of encouragement where you're literally putting courage into people? Are you inspiring people to take steps of faith? Are you kind of motivating people to fall back and run away from the Lord? Which words best sum up you? I, I, I need like one volunteer. Hey, Gracie, can you come here for a second? Yeah, sorry, she was on Snapchat or something, but it's okay. No, I'm just kidding, I don't know what she was doing. She's probably taking notes. She's such a good kid. All right, can you hold that up for a second? Yeah, I was trying to think of somebody that would match with, you know. So I'm just messing, I'm just messing. No, she would never cuss me out. Huh? Oh, words of death. Words of death I just gave her, Stephanie said. Okay. Just kidding, Gracie. You're the best. Words of life. Words of life. All right. And so what James is trying to say is that behind the scenes, you might, she gorgeous. Isn't she gorgeous? Everybody give it up for Gracie. She's so, like, awesome. That's what we do here. We put you on the spot. And behind the scenes, she might be, like, super kind, doing a lot of great things for Jesus, serving him with all she's got. She, she might have, like, uh, 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 the right labels. You know, she's a Christian. She's a life grouper. She's a regular church attender. You know, she's one of those. You know, people know her as those things. But what James is saying is, like, it doesn't matter what's going on behind the scenes if you're saying all the words of death. If you're saying all those kind of words, you might be a Christian. You might do some good things but you're spreading death and chaos and disorder in your life. And this should not be, it's not right, he says. It's not right. There should be a matching up of what we believe and what we do and what we say. That all these things go together. And if we walk around and this is all we show the world, they never even see the Jesus behind it. All they see is like, man, they get angry. Man, they make me feel like a loser. Man, I don't want to be around them anymore. And we're literally driving people away from Jesus, which is the words we say. And then we shrug it off. It's like, I was just joking. I was talking to Cade this week. He's in the kids' class. But he said there was this guy he was talking to in his life one time. And the guy would like say all these like mean, hurtful things. And then whenever somebody got their feelings hurt, then the guy would just be like, oh, I was just joking. And he called him out on it one time. He's like, so one time he said, he's like, you weren't joking. You're only saying that because they're hurt. But it's like, that's how we act. We're just walking around like cussing people out, blowing our top at them, making them feel ashamed for who they are, belittling something about them, crushing their spirit, words of death. And what James is saying is like, you should walk around with Jesus on the inside and Jesus on the outside. The people should hear you speaking words of life. It, it, you should almost sound phony because you're so in love with Jesus. It should almost be so over the top that people are like, can that even be real? All they say is like kind things. They're always encouraging me. Every time I talk to them, I walk away more motivated to serve Jesus. Every time I'm around them, I walk, around, I walk away more motivated more encouraged, more inspired. You can sit down. Thanks. You appreciate that. 
And I just wonder, like, which emoji, like, best sums up the words you speak? The words I speak. Which one? Because it's only one. It can't be both. I promise you. There's nobody in your life that you treat this way 90% of the time, and you treat this way 10% of the time that thinks you're this. You get it? Maturity, growth in my faith, working it out for Jesus, exercising my faith and growing up demands that I speak words of life. And James is saying, if you can't control that part of you, don't even teach in the church. But beyond that, don't even say you're a Christian. I know you've got all the right labels. But if you don't have all the right words to match it, it doesn't matter what you label yourself. Look how he ends the topic in verse 18. This is what he says. He says, in those who are peacemakers. Is that you? Peacemaker? will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Man, I want to reap all the right things. I want to reap all the blessing. I want to have the great life that God wants me to have. Are you sowing seeds of peace? That's really James's question for us. He's asking us, is, is this us? Are we planting seeds of peace wherever we go? Are we inspiring unity or causing division? Are you motivating people to pressing closer to Jesus or are you driving them further away from him? I've been asking this question to some people behind the scenes lately, but I've said like, I'd love to ask our whole churches sometime. I didn't know when it would come up, but it's coming up right now. Praise the Holy Spirit, okay? So here's the question I want to ask you. You ready? If everybody in our church interacted with our church the way you do, would we even have a church? That's really what James is talking about. You say you're a preacher. You say you're a Christian. You say that's your church family. Would there even be a church if everybody treated everybody else like you treat us? What kind of words are you bringing to the table? What kind of offering are you bringing to the table? What kind of commitment are you bringing to the table? If my church attendance was like some of yours, we wouldn't have a church. What if I just decided not to show up every other week? I'm not trying to call anyone out specifically. I'm just saying, like, it costs money to do what we do. What if everybody gave like you gave? It takes a lot of work to serve and reach kids with the gospel. What if everybody served and gave like you give and serve? Would we even have a church? And what James is saying is, like, don't wear the label if you're not going to live the life. Don't walk out of here and brag about being a Christian if you're going to treat God like he's your enemy. He's saying that what you believe on the inside has to be shown on the outside. And beyond just what you do, you have to have the right motives, and those motives will spill out in what you say. That's what he's really talking about. Do your words speak life or death? When you walk into a room, are people more or less likely to experience the truth and grace of Jesus because you're there? Because that's not the call on a pastor. That's the call on a Christian. That we would preach the gospel to every living creature. That we would go, and as we're going, we would make disciples. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I got asked this again this week, like, why don't I baptize everybody? Like, I get asked that almost every time we do baptism. You want to know why? Because I don't want the credit. And there's nothing in the Bible that says the pastor has to baptize people. And I don't want the risk of me getting the credit for baptizing people. And so if somebody leads somebody to Christ, I ask them to baptize them. If it's somebody's kid, I'll invite them to baptize them. If it's a girl, I ask one of the ladies in our church to baptize them. Why? Because the Bible does say that the older ladies are supposed to mentor and disciple the younger ladies. I'm trying to stick to God and his word, not get some kind of glory for me. So when you walk into the room, are people more or less likely to experience the real Jesus? When you do the right thing, who's most likely to get the praise for it? You or God? It's just that James is saying it's time for us who say we're Christians to actually live like it on the inside and out. It's time... It's time for the words we speak to match the labels we wear. That's what he's saying. And so I just ask you to do with God's word what you want to do. You're always free to be a hearer of the word or a doer of the word. And James is just asking us, are you spewing anger and hate and slander and gossip? Or are you living and serving God with the humility it takes to make sure he gets the credit for it? It'll be revealed by the words you speak. It'll be revealed. And it's obvious. If you're not sure, ask some people. Hey, just be honest with me. And then don't hate their guts if they tell you the truth. Have enough humility to be like, man, I need to clean up my language. Stop walking around being like, well, I don't say the F word. It's like you're laying on the couch being like, what's the least I can do and still be using my words for God? What's the very least I can do and still be a Christian? It's not how it's supposed to be. That's not what it looks like to have a faith that works. I'm shooting for the mountaintop. I'm not diving down into the gutter, figuring out the bare minimum I can do and still tell people I'm a Christian. I'm trying to follow Jesus with all I got so other people will know that hope is available through him. I want to pray for you before we quit. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for our church. Would you bless our crowd right now, God, with some courage. It's going to take courage to make change. It always takes courage to make change. God, would you bless the people here today with the courage it'll take to go out of this room and start speaking the way they say they believe, to start letting their words match the badges they wear, start, start letting their, their speech and their, their language match the belief that we say we have in our heart. God, would you help us, give us the ability to speak and treat others like you speak and like you treat others. Help us to be humble. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Wow, we hope that encouraged you and will push you to know Jesus better. There's no better life than the life that is completely dependent on God. Be sure to check back each week for new podcasts from 3SC.